Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. It's 1922, and November the 14th, the BBC launches on 2LO in London. November the 15th, the Birmingham and Manchester stations join the fun. And November the 16th, 2LO stage an entertainment show of musicians and a comedian. But all of this is arranged, planned and performed by a few plucky engineers and accidental broadcasters. It's not until December the 7th that the first interviews for BBC staff take place, and even then there'll only be four of them. So how do we get from November the 17th to December the 7th? What's on the wireless? Who's putting it there? And how do they tell listeners in what to expect? This time, the first listings and a few broadcasting firsts, plus a debate in Parliament on dodgy dealings at the top of the tree. Yes, we've another reenactment for you from the podcast Parliamentary Players. Immerse yourself in days 4 to 23 of the BBC as we don our yellow highlighters and look through the listings before there were listings. Here on the British Broadcasting Century. London hello, hello, I'm Paul Carenza. Welcome to episode two of season two on the earliest days of official British broadcasting, which is nothing to do with today's BBC. I'm sure you know that by now. And that's not just me trying to wash my hands of this delightful organisation that currently is going through, I think it's fair to say, some rocky waters in this post-Bashir world. We're going back to a simpler time, not only simpler because there weren't quite so many employees, in fact there are only four BBC employees to begin with, but in this episode we're going back to just before those four employees even started. Our British Broadcasting Company, in November 1922, employs approximately nobody at this stage. So how did it function and what was on the air? Well, our story is chronological, so this time you'll find us in late November going into early December of 1922. Our newborn BBC is taking baby steps, which is still not bad for only four days old. In this episode, we will speed up a tiny bit. We'll cover weeks two and three of these brand new broadcasters. And they are treading water a little at this point. They're not running before they can walk. I'm mixing my metaphors. Basically, we've got to wait for the first staff to arrive in mid-December. At the minute, the job adverts have gone out, but no one's even been interviewed for the roles. So these three radio stations in London, Birmingham and Manchester have oddly got the go-ahead to begin broadcasting to start the BBC but no one actually works there. So they've borrowed staff, pulled in favours, and they're funded by these individual wireless manufacturers like Marconi's, Western Electric, Metrovic, bankrolling the early BBC. So next episode, those first staff members will arrive. John Reith, of course, you might have heard of him. And if you've listened to season one of the podcast, you will know names like Arthur Burroughs, the first voice of the BBC, and really the brains behind broadcasting at this stage. But for now in our story, in these first few weeks, Burroughs is, well, if not quite single-handedly running the show, he's making lots of the key decisions, lots of the on-air announcements, in London at least, and helping navigate the good ship broadcasting until a proper crew takes over. And he would in fact be one quarter of that crew, but that's for next time. So how do we piece together what we know about the Beeb's first fortnight? Well, it's all memos and newspaper clippings, so it'll be a bit sporadic and chaotic this episode. That's what listings are, especially because as we're nearly a year before the Radio Times at this point, it's kind of a primitive patchwork. Let's dive into the listings then and explore what was on air for the first three weeks of the BBC. 
So we begin with the origin of the listings. Now, November the 17th, this is the fourth day of the BBC, and Arthur Burroughs, first voice of the Beeb, and at this point, he's the person who knows most about broadcasting outside of America, I would imagine. Arthur Burroughs sends a memo to his number two, Stanton Jeffries, who works with him at Tuolo in London. To Stanton Jeffries, I sent a memorandum which perhaps may be considered a milestone in the history of British broadcasting. Now, this memo is one that Arthur Burroughs calls the most historic order of the day in the history of broadcasting. Which Jeffries uh, has treasured. Why? Well, four days into the Beeb, it established the way of things, the schedules going forward, a sort of routine. The document he will now read to you. Here we have Stanton Jeffries himself, that number two at 2LO, and the future musical director of the BBC. A.R. Burroughs to L. Stanton Jeffries. The British Broadcasting Committee has arranged to transmit the following programmes each evening, Saturdays and Sundays included, until further notice from the London Broadcasting Station, 2LO. 6pm News Bulletin, 8 to 9 Music, 9 to 9.30 News, 9.30 to 10 Music. Now, I don't know if that is the most historic order of the day in the history of broadcasting, as Burroughs claimed. In fact, going back a few months, our newspaper detective, Andrew Barker, he's found a pretty historic one recently. This is a public statement that looks to be the first one made by the BBC. Exactly three months earlier, August the 17th, 1922, this press release was issued to the wireless press in anticipation of official broadcasting, the BBC's first flag in the ground. The Broadcasting Company. The following statement has been issued by the Committee of Manufacturers who are at present engaged in creating the Broadcasting Company. The Committee have observed that a number of unauthoritative statements have been made with regard to broadcasting and desire it to be known that until the British Broadcasting Company is registered and the board of that company has been appointed, no authoritative statement insofar as the Broadcasting Company is concerned can be made. Signed, George Pells, Secretary Pro Tem, the British Broadcasting Company. George Pells was one of those men charged with setting things going in the summer of 22 under the Broadcasting Committee. August 17th, 1922, Marconi House, WC2. And I know that we are past this in our current chronology, but Andrew Barker found that pre-BBC statement we had to include it a little late. But a quarter of a year on, where we are now, the Broadcasting Committee are pretty hands-off. Days into the BBC, it's down to people like Arthur Burroughs, temporary broadcasters, engineers, people in the right place at the right time to get things going. And so Burroughs' memo to Jeffries at earliest schedule is to become the first listing, but it will take a few days to filter down to the press. Meanwhile, same day in Birmingham, one of the announcers chanced a little joke, according to one wireless publication. Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective, takes up the story. So when uh, Birmingham station opened up we have a description of those of those first programs and possibly the first joke on the bbc let's say it's of its time (laughs) concerns the young son of a wireless amateur who was called upon to say grace this is what he said hello hello good lord stand by and listen in for thanks for what we're about to receive (laughs) yes indeed of its day and that day is november the 17th 1922. But the next day in our listings, if we had listings, we would see that Birmingham changed name of its radio station. In other words, its call sign. It was previously called 2WP after the London transmitter that was shipped up to the Midlands. And on November the 18th, Birmingham broadcasts as 5IT. This is 5IT. We are transmitting on a wavelength of 420 metres. And our call sign is 5IT. 
From now on, we shall be transmitting daily. That's A.E. Thompson there, the first announcer of 5IT Birmingham. Arguably, this was the moment that Birmingham's station fell under the BBC banner. Now, in these very early moments, the station's engineer, who you heard there, A.E. Thompson, was running the show pretty much single-handed. I had no funds for paying artists at all. What I used to do was to engage a taxi and ask the artists if they'd be good enough to meet under a certain lamppost in Birmingham where a taxi would be waiting and then all crowd in there and they would be taken down to the station at Whitton. And then at Whitton, of course, we couldn't send them back individually because that would have cost too much. So we engaged a small girl to make tea and coffee and, and uh, serve them uh, refreshments until the, the transmission had ended and then we all crowded into the one taxi and went home. <laughs> the following Tuesday, A. Thompson would be joined by a more seasoned performer, the man that he'd turned to to hire the opening night's artists, Percy Edgar, CR Percy Edgar Special, for more on his backstory. Now, if we had listings at this point, we would see that Tuesday the 21st of November is the first day to have regular children's programming as A. E. Thompson and Percy Edgar become Uncle Tom and Uncle Edgar. Uncle Tom's tales of Susan, the blue china cat with big green eyes, were soon joined by other employees alongside them. Uncle Edgar, Uncle Pat Casey, Mr F.H. Amos as the fairy dustman. Well, other than tell stories, we had to fall back largely, of course, on gramophone records because it's difficult to talk in front of a microphone for a half an hour all by yourself. So I used to play records and uh, I soon discovered that they liked the records very much and one that was tremendously popular was a record called The Dance of the Goblins. And they liked that so much that I was really compelled to put it on every night. They wanted always to hear the dance of the goblins. About time CBeebies brought that back with a remix, I think. The Birmingham Children's Corner soon inspires the London Children's Hour, which one day would then inspire John Noakes and a peeing elephant, a round window, a purple Teletubby with a handbag, and Derek Jacobi telling us all about Pinky Ponks and Macapaca. If there were listings, which there aren't, we would see that the same day, November the 21st, London 2LO has its third and fourth recorded entertainers, Helena Millay, back once again as our Lizzie. Be good, and if you can't, mind no one sees you. And Billy Whitlock, a variety act and skilled percussionist known for his xylophone records. He sometimes performed as a double act with Charles Penrose. Billy Whitlock also became a recording engineer, so was fascinated with radio and the production of gramophone records, as well as recording his own routines onto them. As the BBC turned one week old, Billy Whitlock brought tubular bells to the studio and bashed out a comedy song called The March of the Old Sports. And by the way, in all of this, each station was still shutting down for three minutes in every ten minutes. You may remember from season one, that they were doing that all through 1922 to listen out for government messages telling them to stop, which they never received. If you've ever seen my comedy act, I always include three minutes of silence, though that's while I'm waiting for them to laugh. One radio listener in November 1922 complained in Amateur Wireless magazine that Birmingham had a knack of shutting down for longer than the mandatory three minutes. Why does Birmingham say he was going to switch off for three minutes and then be away for five or eight? It wastes our juice. In London, when Burroughs of the clear articulation says that he is having a three-minute interval, it is a three-minute interval. Except when he makes it two minutes, 57 seconds. 
Burroughs, meanwhile, was referring to them on air. There will now be another one of those horrible little intervals. Yes, it must have been wearing. Although some people were quite supportive of them. One correspondent to Popular Wireless magazine noted, Apart from the fact that it's government regulations, it's rather necessary that the stage manager should have a moment or two to smooth out his arrangements. Well, theatres and music halls have their curtains, don't they? And as we reported last season, some actually enjoyed these enforced intermissions. One listener wrote to Burroughs, I've enjoyed equally the three-minute intervals, which have given me time to reach the kitchen and baste the joint for dinner. The next day, that memo that Arthur Burroughs sent to Jeffries about the fixed schedules, well, that's now trickled down to the newspapers, and with occasional extra details of who is on each concert, the schedules are now starting to reach the press. That means that from November the 22nd edition, the first listings appear. It's not the Radio Times, it's just the Times that the radio's on, and it first features, we reckon, in the Pall Mall Gazette, part of a full-page advert for the Marconi Company. Underneath where it says, Get your Marconi phone now and be among the first to listen to the fine programmes broadcasted daily, free of charge. No experience necessary. The listings then appear. Tonight's programme, London Station, 6pm official weather report, 6 to 6.30, copyright news bulletin, 8 till 9, vocal and instrumental concert by well-known artists, 9 to 9.30, latest news bulletin and a weather report, 9.30 to 10.30, concert including dance music. When they say dance music, I always imagine Dave Pierce or Judge Jules dropping some fat beats. No, different sort of dance music. The above is subject to alteration and extension, details of which will be announced verbally from the transmitting station. Also on this day, November the 22nd, 22, a date that you could call 221122, like a sound test, the Wireless Society of Great Britain changes its name to the Radio Society of Great Britain. Yes, wireless is now becoming radio. It's an increasingly commonly used word at the time, although everyday folks do still use wireless for quite some time. But it is slowly shifting. Radio is on the way in, wireless is on the way out. Also on November the 22nd is when two ex-naval officers applied to the post office for a licence to install a five-valve radio receiver with a loudspeaker in a Ford van. With the object of touring country towns and villages and giving auditions of the concerts broadcast by the BBC. Yes, they want to just drive around playing radio. They've applied for a licence. They want to do it legitimately. And at this stage, neither the BBC nor the GPO could stop them. Anyway, let's turn the page of our metaphorical listings and see the next day in the north, where the Manchester Guardian notes that listening in is passing from the stunt stage. At first, it was undoubtedly only the new thing, with daily a large batch of letters from children and adults. Nearly all the music which is broadcasted is done by means of gramophone records. Last night, Rossini, Sansin, Joseph Holbrook, Liszt, Arne, David, Brahms, Roger Quilter, Frank Bridge and Villiers Stanford were the composers, and the orchestras included the Halle, the Royal Albert Hall and Sir Henry Woods. The influence of one listening inset in a street is said to be incalculable. A friend here and a friend there makes use of it, and the result usually is that the friend gets a set of his own. When that process has gone far enough, at an inevitably accelerated pace, we shall doubtless begin to know the real utility of the broadcasting invention. To show what is actually being done, a programme is attached of the things that were broadcasted for the Manchester station yesterday. Yeah, so there's an oddity. The listing after it had gone out. Here's what you could have heard. 
6pm, late news and announcements. 6.30, the second Sandman story, a game and music for the kiddies. 7pm, readings of general interest. 7.30pm, Mr X's brother-in-law, more funny stories from him. 7.45, a special musical programme. 9pm, late news and closing prices. And a musical programme. And no iPlayer to catch up. Two days later, into our second week of our bumper metaphorical listings, it's November the 25th, on the 12th day of the BBC, my 2LO gave to me a new form of broadcast performance, the in-house orchestra. This is the first concert of the 2LO wireless orchestra, of just eight due to space in the studio, and they are very carefully arranged. The conductor faces the clock for precision of start and end times, And it was known for conductors to conduct faster if they had three minutes of music, say, to fit into two minutes before the show's end. The eight performers face the conductor, each seated precisely the right distance from the microphone based on the volume of sound that instruments will produce. No one mic per performer here. The piano is carefully positioned as well so that the light from one of the studio's windows can help illuminate the sheet music. The first piece of that first 2LO wireless concert is Elgar's Pomp and Circumstance Number 1. And bits of Grieg's Pier Gint. The March of the Crusaders from Decameron Knights by Fink. A bit of Madame Butterfly and a Foxtrot and a One Step. A couple of comedians as well. You've also got three songs from a baritone called Topless Green. Yeah, the first name Topless has certainly fallen out of favour, it seems. But what a show! This 2LO Wireless Orchestra is the initiative of Arthur Burroughs and Stanton Jeffries. They've had enough soloists and they wanted a fresh feel on this new radio malarkey. And listeners certainly agree. In Amateur Wireless magazine. 2LO's new orchestra is a great feature. So many congratulatory calls were received on the landline that the announcer had to issue a message begging admirers to send postcards instead of telephoning in order to prevent the one operator on duty at the exchange from being snowed under. The orchestra's performance of part of Pier Gint was magnificent, and the dance music must have set hundreds of couples foxtrotting in all parts of the country. This is just a trial run for now, but Burroughs wants the orchestra as a regular feature. He knows it will cost, so he contacts Sir William Noble, chair of the Broadcasting Committee, who are babysitting the BBC at this point. Noble, who's really in charge of the BBC before Reith comes along, pretty much shrugs. They've got no budget for things like an orchestra, no real interest or power to do any more than coast along until a general manager can be found in John Reith. So in early December, Burroughs asks Marconi boss Godfrey Isaacs if the Marconi company might be prepared to bear this expense until such a time as the committee will shoulder it. It's a tricky halfway house period. BBC not fully in yet. The old company's still kind of running the show. Ultimately, Burroughs would get his way. The orchestra return on December the 23rd as a permanent fixture. By then, he will have more sway as the BBC's first director of programmes. More on that next time. These 2LO musical evenings set the standard for the BBC for years to come. Evenings become a time for a little light music. The piano is gradually replaced as a form of home-based musical entertainment. Even a year later, when the Radio Times launches, is article after article urging and coaxing people away from the piano and towards this new magical box in the corner. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Back in late November in our listings, well, we do have some more printed listings of sorts. Popular Wireless magazine in their November 25th issue reminds us that actually there are some non-BBC stations you can hear, giving us a handy full-page schedule titled Broadcasting Programmes, What You Can Hear Every Evening of the Week on Your Set. It was still trying to convince its audience that broadcasting had a future. 
But for now, yeah, you could hear about 12 different stations and only three of them were BBC at this point. Croydon, call sign GED, throughout the day to aeroplanes. From Germany, you can hear Königswusterhausen. You can hear The Hague on PCGG, Marconi House 2LO, Rittel in Essex on 2MT, Harvin OPVH. That's about every 20 minutes past each hour from 11.20 to 4.20, giving messages to aeroplanes on the Brussels to Paris, Brussels to London and Brussels to Amsterdam lines. These are the earliest moments of civil aviation and people were listening in to air traffic control. There's Radio Electrique in Paris with concerts at 9.45pm. Brussels Meteorological Institute has Morse, described as easy reading for amateurs. On call sign 2FQ, you can hear another radio amateur, Mr Burnham, in Blackheath, about 9 o'clock every evening, even that's listed. Newcastle, call sign 5BA, for now, is undergoing test transmissions until the BBC take it over at the end of December. Then the Manchester Broadcasting Station 2ZY, the Birmingham Witten Station 2WP, now becoming 5IT. And it even lists the bar lightship in Liverpool, sending telephony every two hours to the dock office. So that's pretty much everything that you can regularly hear on your radio sets. One correspondent to the magazine is still puzzling out radio, a little unsure of what a wavelength is. I've bought a crystal set. I've been told it will only receive up to 2,600 metres. This works out at about one and a half miles. I live about three miles from Marconi House. What can I do to increase the range so I can receive their concerts? The editor replied, The range mentioned is not the distance it will receive, but the range of wavelengths which will affect it. You should be able to hear 2LO quite well. And if they did, they would hear on November the 28th something rather special. In many ways, it's something that our last episode was building up to. This is just a little American song written by two perfectly good Englishmen who've never been to America in their lives. A little song called I Wonder What Made Her Go. Not just another BBC entertainer, but the first entertainer to make his name by radio. Well, I've just got time for one little story on this side. Norman Long. Just a little story about a little boy who went round to a neighbour's house one morning, knocked at the door, and a lady came to the door, and he said, Oh, Mrs Smith. He said, you know that dog you gave us about a month ago? She said, yes, dear. He said, well, Mother says, will you send and take them all back again? Yes, November the 28th, exactly a fortnight into the BBC's life, Norman Long gave his radio debut in The Cat's Whisker. And he was a radio natural. Long could talk and talk, no hesitation, a bit of deviation, not much repetition. Here's our in-house comedy historian, author of books on Cracker Jack and Wilson, Keppel and Betty. Here's Alan Stafford on Norman Long. He, he really got radio, I think. His um, second appearance, so he made his initial appearance, and then when he came back, the billing said something like, Norman Long will amaze you with some magical card tricks. And that, that's someone that knows what, you know understands radio and what you uh, and, and radio comedy maybe I, I don't know if he was a Londoner he, he had a slight impediment on the R it, it was a very kind of period type of voice it's the kind of if you get a, a Noel Coward film with a cockney in it it's, it's that kind of accent I don't pretend I'm handsome but who wants that in men my fortune's not a ransom about two pounds six and ten my faults though are not penal there's nothing wrong with me except an old so I, th- I think he probably was very much regarded as more or less the first comedian that broadcast. I think his billing matter was a song, a smile and a piano. And the BBC made him change it to a song, a joke and a piano because they 
so you can <laughs> broadcast a smile. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. That's why you need producers to tell you things like that, isn't it? Just to remind <laughs> you of the medium you're performing in. Why did my sweetie leave me flat? Nobody seems to know. Ever since then, alone I've sat. Oh, Vodio do. I've hardly a hair left upon my head. My face is yellow and my nose is red. But like a pork sausage, I'm very well bred. So I wonder what made her go. He'd returned numerous times throughout the early BBC, notably on the opening night of Savoy Hill in May 1923. More of that in a few episodes' time. And in 1927, at the first Royal Command performance. I'd mend my own socks if I knew the route. For now, when I put on a shoe or a boot, where there ought to be hosiery, there's nought but a foot. So I wonder what made her go. For more fantastic clips like this, find the Oz Radio Historian channel on YouTube. That's AUS Radio Historian, all one word. They have hundreds of restored old recordings just like this one. The link is in the show notes. Now, next day, leaping through our listings, while man in charge Arthur Burroughs waits for the verdict on bringing the orchestra back, he's concerned about the nature of song choice of the low-paid artists that they lure in. So he writes a memo to his 2LO colleague, music maestro Stanton Jeffries. It has to be brought home to these people, the singers, that they must adapt their artistry to the limitations of the wireless circuit if they hope to create the most favourable impression upon their vast audience. Songs of a really popular character, not necessarily trashy, but items either exceedingly well-known or those that go with a swing, at least until we have the public so interested in wireless that we can lift them above their present standard of musical appreciation. The day after that, November 30th, let's take our metaphorical listings to the BBC Parliament channel once again. You know, the more hardy listeners may have caught our parliamentary special reenacting various House of Commons debates in 1922 that covered broadcasting. It was a pretty epic episode. Well done if you listened to all of it, and also well done if you understood much of it. Well, another brief reenactment now, except that now that the BBC is up and running. This debate was not about the broadcasters. It's about what happened next at the Marconi Company. You see, they've got a new director. And it's someone that we've heard from before in this story. The ex-postmaster general, Mr. Kellaway. Voiced by me in those parliamentary reconstructions, he lost his seat in the election on the second day of the BBC. And so he's looking for a new job and he's moved to the Marconi Company. The man who was overseeing the route to broadcasting is now working with the broadcasters. Is this a conflict of interest? Well, Captain Ben had an issue with it, and he's asking questions to the new Postmaster General, future paper waver and peace in our time proponent, Neville Chamberlain. Order! Order! Captain Ben! I am very much obliged to the right honourable gentleman, the Postmaster General, for being present when I said that I wish to ask a question of him. It's with reference to the announcement which appears in the newspaper today that Mr Kellaway had become a director of the Marconi Company. I do not propose to raise the general question which is here involved. It's a very important question of public policy, as I think that ministers or others connected with government departments... Mr Short! Am I not entitled to take precedence over the honourable and gallant gentleman, seeing that I gave notice? If it were a question involving debate, I should give the honourable member precedence, uh, but, but I took this to be a question asked merely for information, and I do not think it will take more than a minute or so. Captain Ben! I shall not detain the House for more than a few moments. The general question of public officials resigning their appointments and taking up appointments with business firms with whom they had official connection is, I think, 
a very important one. And I think the practice is objectionable. I observe in tonight's Star newspaper that at the last meeting of the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company, Mr Marconi stated that there were claims outstanding. Essentially, the story was that the Marconi Company had claimed the government owed them money earlier in the year for war work. And when he was Postmaster General, they'd asked Kellaway if he could give them that money. But now he's left government and about to join Marconi's, Kellaway insists that he did not give them any money. Mr Marconi stated that conversations of a very encouraging nature had taken place at an interview with Mr Kellaway, and he had no doubt this was a man of action and progress. That is quite obvious. And he therefore thought... A little more patience on our part may be well rewarded. What I wish to ask the Postmaster General, who has, of course, no personal knowledge of the intentions of his predecessor, is this. In reference to the broadcasting arrangement in which Mr Marconi is very much interested, supposing there are decisions of Mr Kellaway's which have yet to be implemented by the Post Office, will he undertake to say those decisions will be most carefully revised by himself in a way which will reassure the public mind as to their being in the public interest? The Postmaster General, Mr Neville Chamberlain. I am much obliged to the honourable and gallant gentleman for giving me notice, which only reached me a quarter of an hour ago, that he intended to raise this question. I have not had the advantage of seeing the Star newspaper, and I was unaware until I had his communication that Mr Kellaway had become a director of the Marconi Company. As to the engagements which Mr Kellaway may have made with the Marconi Company in his capacity as Postmaster General, I really do not know what they are. I have only been a comparatively short time in my present position, and am not acquainted with the details of all the negotiations which have taken place in the past. I think my honourable and gallant friend is probably unduly disturbed. The reputation of my predecessor is such that I think the House may fairly be satisfied that nothing he would do would be dishonourable or prejudicial to the interests of the country. As to examining the contracts or promises which may have been made, that I shall have to do in any case. I think my honourable and gallant friend may rest assured that, in examining those contracts, I shall endeavour to see that the interests of the country are put above everything else. Now, this wasn't the first time the Marconi Company had a brush with dodgy dealings. In fact, ten years earlier, the Marconi scandal brought allegations of government sleaze that thankfully we no longer have today. No siree. Back in 1912, a decade before the Marconi Company almost single-handedly kick-started the BBC, Marconi's won a government tender to build wireless stations across the empire. It was a huge job. Now, unfortunately, Godfrey Isaacs, the Marconi's boss, tipped off his brother Rufus. And Rufus Isaacs was a government minister, the Attorney General. And he and the then-Chancellor Lloyd George and another minister all bought shares in the US Marconi Company at a very low price before they were publicly available. They all made a packet on it, which of course invited questions about insider dealing. They were actually caught out by The Eyewitness, which was a publication run by some rather famous writers, G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. The Marconi scandal all got even more controversial because those ministers accused were mostly Jewish and there were charges of anti-Semitism against the publication The Eyewitness. You know, were they victimising high-profile Jewish leaders or were they catching out insider trading? Oh my, I'm glad I'm not ruling on it today. 
Either way, it caused G.K. Chesterton, yes, the author of Father Brown, no less, to say, It is the fashion to divide recent history into pre-war and post-war conditions. I believe it is almost as essential to divide them into pre-Marconi and post-Marconi days. Yeah, perhaps we don't give Marconi Company enough credit for casting such a large shadow over the 20th century. So away from the Marconi scandal, back in our timeline, 1922, we move into December in our listings. If we had a Radio Times then, it would show that on the 1st of December, on air, there were more funny stories. A Mr Stainer with The Gardener's Story or The Worm That Turned. And on December the 3rd, Arthur Burroughs was concerned with the slow start to BBC employment. He noted the importance to seize anyone to do with broadcasting and to drill everyone into a routine at the earliest possible moment. I think he had an eye on the provincial stations here too. Burroughs wrote to Marconi boss Godfrey Isaacs, the ex-insider dealer-in-chief, to say the BBC desperately needed more staff, or even some staff. Burroughs and Jeffries were working 11 to 17 hour days at this point. Burroughs wondered too if he could somehow have a dual role going forward. Could he still be the publicity director for Marconi's, as he had been for years throughout this, as well as running the show at the Beeb? Well, the answer, no. He needed to pick a lane. Marconi's or BBC? As we will see next episode, Arthur Burroughs obviously chose the younger company and left Marconi's behind. But joining Marconi's as a director then, as we heard in Parliament, was the old postmaster general, Mr Kellaway. He had paved the way for the BBC by okaying the licence. Now he'd lost his seat. He was settling in with his old business sparring partner, Marconi's. So the day after Burroughs was told he had to leave Marconi's, Kellaway wrote an open letter to the Prime Minister answering those questions asked in Parliament and clarifying that he was not dodgy. At the end of this long letter in the press, he sums it up saying, The suggestions made in the House have no foundation. Yours faithfully, F.G. Kellaway. Still, this poacher-turned-gamekeeper found his name dragged through the Commons once again that day, and so it's back to the Parliament Channel and our parliamentary players. And now the Prime Minister, Mr Boner Law, is involved. Order! Order! Mr Third. Could the Prime Minister tell the House whether Mr Kellaway, up to the time of his resignation as Postmaster General six weeks ago, on behalf of the government, was in negotiation with the Marconi Company? A company that he has since joined. And will in the public interest it be made a condition of service under the Crown that no minister or civil servant should, within a period of five years after resignation, enter the service of any private enterprise with which he had been in negotiation on behalf of the government? The Prime Minister, Mr Bonalore! As regards to the first part of the question, the facts are, I believe, as stated in Mr Kellaway's letter, which appeared in the press today, I am not prepared to adopt the suggestion contained in the last part of the question. Isn't it the fact that transactions are continuously passing between the Postmaster General and the Marconi Company? The Prime Minister, Mr Bonalore. I have asked the Post Office and they replied that the facts are as stated in Mr Kellaway's letter. Mr Middleton. Is it not a fact that the late Postmaster General concluded more than one agreement with the Marconi Company, which resulted in profits to the company and consequent loss to the state? I think that is denied in the letter to which I have referred. The PM has spoken. That's enough on the alleged sleaze at the top of the tree, though clearly there were some issues with the Postmaster General jumping ship and landing on a rather successful ship called the Marconi Company and heading off in search of fortunes. 
Now, we've been jumping too in this episode, all over the place rather, but that is what listings do. So I hope you appreciate this episode. It's just a, a snapshot, really, of a fortnight or so, but a crucial fortnight of the early BBC, the rare pre-Wreath era. He will arrive next week. So enjoy walking these corridors while you can without having that six-foot-six giant staring down at you. So let's have one final look at the next day, December the 5th, when listings start to actually appear on a daily basis. Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective, has been through the archives and found this in the Derby Daily Telegraph about Birmingham 5IT, the first of the regular daily listings. Today's broadcasting. From Witten, wavelength 420 metres, 6.30pm children's stories, 7 and 10pm news, 7.15 to 10pm a concert with Madame Emily Waldron, soprano, Mr Philip Taylor, baritone, Mr Raymond Green, entertainer and Mr F. Wright on the cornet. That's notable too for being the first regular inclusion of the children's corner under Uncle Tom and Uncle Edgar, who was actually appointed on this day as Birmingham Station Director under his regular name, Percy Edgar. After a few evenings of uh, sending artists down to Witten, Thompson came to me one morning in, the, in my office in New Street and said, would I be prepared to take on the job as station director? Well, it was a terrific step to take because, frankly, I knew nothing whatever about broadcasting and my only qualifications were that I had had a long and, I hope, in all modesty, a fairly successful career on the stage, the music hall and theatrical stage, and also, of course, as a concert director. It, it gave me terrific amount of knowledge of the artists and I felt that that experience over a number of years helped me considerably to give the public what I thought it wanted in the way of entertainment. I felt quite sincerely that this was the opportunity that knocks but once and I'd got to take it. And on the Sunday evening after the offer had been made, I, I said just that to my wife, who said, well, if that's how you feel about it, you take it. I met Thompson over a cup of coffee on the Monday morning where we'd agreed to meet. And he said, well, what have you decided? I said, I've decided to take it. He said, I'm glad. He said, you'll never regret it. And I never did. Also joining the Birmingham staff at this point was announcer James Socket. Plus, already there were station engineers Mr Delarain and Mr Amos. Percy Edgar added an assistant manager as well, Harold Casey, and this made the first five employees at the Birmingham 5IT station and arguably the first employees of the BBC, although they weren't paid for by the BBC as head office couldn't fund provincial staff until halfway through 1923. Instead, Western Electric were paying for these staff, who would then work for the BBC. Got it? Good, me neither. So we do need some proper BBC employees then. And on to the next episode for that. And one of them, meanwhile, in Manchester on that same day, December the 5th, 1922, is giving a talk on the BBC's 2ZY station. Perhaps the first BBC talk on flying in China. Cecil A. Lewis knew a lot about that. He was a World War I flying ace and he's about to apply for another job. Director of programmes at the BBC in London. The trouble is, Arthur Burroughs is about to apply for the same job. So next time, we will find out who gets what as the first BBC staff are employed at Magnet House. 
One last clip for you. December the 6th, 1922, at Marconi House, the London station, just up the road from the future head office, Stanton Jeffries. He's been focusing on musical output. And here is the man himself, Stanton Jeffries. On December the 6th, 1922, I received the following memorandum from the Director of Programmes to L. Stanton Jeffries, musical director. We have received several appeals lately for a cornet solo. I think this is an instrument which, if placed at a discreet distance from the microphone, should create a good impression. Ah, forget the cornets. We need some staff. Next time, the BBC gets their first employees. But first, the job interviews. The Reef era begins. But who are the first four BBC employees? Find out next time. So I know this has been a little bit of a scattershot episode, a broadcast here, a memo there, but these early weeks of the BBC I think are quite rare and unusual in that no one's really technically working there yet, and yet there is so much work being done by those early pioneers who are making it up as they go along. Now, some of this is thanks to our newspaper detective, Andrew Barker. Some is from comedy historian Alan Stafford. So doff your caps to both of them. Other bits are from marvellous books like Brian Hennessy's The Emergence of Broadcasting in Britain. Still the most thorough book that I found for those earliest moments of BBCness. And while we're thanking people, let's herald and hurrah those of you who have joined us on Patreon. Thank you for your support. We've had a couple of newbies join us as well. Hello to you. Our latest batch of brilliance include Keith M, Zephyr Chick, David J, Andrew D, Alan E, Russ A, Amory T, Sarah M, Sarah NM, uh, Mark L, Dave and Jackie, Andrew B, Chris T, Matt L and Andrew J. Hello to all of you. You know the rest of your names. I know the rest of your names. The world doesn't for GDPR reasons. But they know that I thank you hugely. If you don't support us via Patreon, but you fancy keeping us in books and web hosting, patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. Current perks there include video interviews with future guests, a tour of my radio history bookshelf, and coming soon, the opening part of my novel based on this entire podcast. Ooh. The finished product are coming one year to a bookshop near you if I get a move on. Huge thanks this episode to our cast of listeners who are portraying the MPs in those reenactments. As I reel off their names, I would like you to imagine them waving like at the end of Heidi High. You have been listening to Pete Hawkins as Neville Chamberlain, Eddie Johnston as Captain Ben, Lynn Robertson Hay as Mr. Short, Philip Rowe as Mr. Hurd, Paul Stubbs as Mr. Middleton, Daniel Edison as the Prime Minister, Mr. Bonalore, Law, and as Mr. Speaker, Wayne Clark. Parliamentary information licensed under the Open Parliament Licence version 3.0. Next time, we've got a guest, all right, broadcasting legend Diddy David Hamilton. Stay tuned, or stay subscribed, I think they call it nowadays. And thank you for listening. Do like, share, follow, retweet, all those sorts of things that you know just help podcasts do what they do best. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain or used with kind permission of the BBC. Or we don't know whose domain they are. Is it you? If so, let us know. Be informed, educated, entertained, and maybe next time, hired at the early BBC at the British Broadcasting Century. <laughs>